If you were asked to create a nativity scene for Jesus, what images would you include? Would there be animals? Would there be a cave? Would there be Joseph and Mary kneeling there and three wise men bearing gifts? In today's episode, we're going to talk about the nativity scene in Luke chapter 2. My name is Ty Nickel, and this is the Lighthouse Podcast. In verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the time of the census, and there would have been many people returning to their hometowns, and especially in the town of David, the city of David, where Joseph and Mary go. There may have been many babies in that town. So the angel appears, and the shepherds are terrified. And the first thing that he has to do is say that you're going to find a baby. You're going to find a baby who is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. But how will they know? Well, they're going to find him because he's going to be wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And so manger means Messiah. And that's what we have to learn from this passage is that manger is spoken of three times by Luke, and we learn that manger means Messiah. 
Within the brutal world of Rome, you have the amoral and ruthless ruler, Caesar Augustus. That's in the background of Luke chapter 2. But Luke adds a human touch to this birth scene, this nativity, because Jesus is a little baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. He's threatening to no one. But this is one of those points that still points those shepherds who are also outcasts in their society, even though we've romanticized them in our culture, in our Christian culture, we see these shepherds coming and they were outcasts even in their time. And so they're the first ones to see the real king of the world. And so this is how Luke gives us all just a little bit of a human touch because God works through humans to accomplish his will. And that's certainly going to be the case for Jesus, who will become the king of everyone. N.T. Wright uses this illustration of pointing out something to a dog. He says, if you try to point out something to a dog, the dog will often look at your finger instead of at the object you're trying to point to. This is frustrating, but it illustrates a natural mistake we all make from time to time. He says it's the mistake many people make when reading the Christmas story in Luke's gospel. What do we know about Jesus' birth? The manger, the Christmas crib, the most famous animal feeding trough in all history. You see it on Christmas cards. Churches make elaborate cribs and sometimes encourage people to say their prayers in front of them. We know about the animals too, not that Luke even mentions any, the ox and the donkey feature prominently in Christmas cards and carols, though there is no indication here that the shepherds brought their own animals with them or that there were any in the place where Mary and Joseph were staying. That's a very interesting observation. And another observation which we're going to get into with even Kenneth Bailey's comments is the observation about where exactly was Jesus born? As we've said, there are nativity scenes in people's yards everywhere, and typically even in movies, we will get the depiction that Jesus is born in a cave. Now, we don't know for sure exactly where Jesus was born, but I think that we can reasonably understand from the scriptures where he was, and we'll try to point that out here in this um, episode. So we're going to talk about that as well as talk about the meaning of why Jesus is being contrasted with Caesar Augustus. The point of the manger in Luke's story is clear. It's a sign for the shepherds to know exactly who they're supposed to be looking for. Savior, Lord, Son of God. They come and they find Mary and Joseph, and they know that this is the boy who is to be called their king. And so this is an important part of the story that has crept into our culture, but we use it in a very romantic way uh, as a culture to warm our hearts uh, in the sense of seeing a humble beginning. And we, were, and we see the gifts being brought 
to the boy. But is that a part of this story, or is this sometime later? This is actually trying to separate myth from reality, and especially using the Gospels and some of our commentators, N.T. Wright and Kenneth Bailey. So again, N.T. Wright is making this point in his commentary, and he says the point that Luke is making is very clear. The birth of this little boy, Jesus, is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness insignificance and vulnerability, and the kingdoms of the world. So you have this idea here in the very beginning that we're going to see a confrontation of kingdoms. So what is Jesus' manger really pointing to? Like the dog that looks at our finger rather than what we're pointing to, many times we look at the manger instead of what the manger is pointing to. And the manger is pointing to a king. The manger is pointing to a savior. The manger is pointing to the Son of God. So will Luke's story tell us and fulfill all of those expectations for us? Well, that it will. So we need to continue reading on in Luke. We're not going to do that in this episode, but that's what we need to do when we think of the nativity scene in so many people's yards. We need to think that it points to a king. Someone who's actually ruling our world at this point. In the background of Jesus' story, of his birth story, you have Luke saying in the very first verse of chapter 2, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So looming in the background is this kind of shadowy figure that the entire world may not never have met or seen except on a coin that they may have had or a bust that would have been made or a statue somewhere in their city or their village. You would have had this uh, ominous figure in your mind of Caesar Augustus. And so Augustus, as N.T. Wright says, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He became the sole ruler of the Roman world after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all rival claimants. And the last to be destroyed was the famous Mark Antony, who committed suicide not long after his defeat at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Augustus turned the great Roman Republic into an empire, with himself at the head, Wright says. He proclaimed that he had brought justice and peace to the whole world and, declaring his dead adoptive father to be divine, he styled himself as son of God. Poets wrote song about the new era that had begun. Historians told the long story of Rome's rise to greatness, reaching its climax, obviously, with Augustus himself. Augustus, people said, was the savior of the world. He was its king, its lord. Increasingly, in the eastern part of his empire, people worshipped him, too, as a god. So we have this image looming in the background, ominous, that Luke includes in his story of Jesus' birth, of Caesar Augustus. 
I remember reading about the death of Caesar Augustus, and he would have never even met Jesus, maybe never even heard of Jesus of Nazareth. But I remember hearing the story about his death, how his wife and he retired to the island of Capri, and he had determined, Caesar did, to um, spend out his last days and hopefully have a smooth transition of power, a peaceful transition of power uh, to his son Tiberius, adopted son Tiberius. And so it came about that he had a sickness, and to make a long story short, he ended up eating a poisoned fig, uh, which his wife provided him. And there's more to the story, but he thanked his wife for doing this so that there wouldn't be any more struggle. And so Augustus died having probably never even heard the name Jesus of Nazareth mentioned. And meanwhile, there is going to be a little boy in a humble manger in Galilee who is also going to be called Son of God, Savior, and Lord. Wright goes on, he says, whose arrival they thought had uh, brought true justice and peace to the world. Jesus never stood before a Roman emperor, but at the climax of Luke's gospel, he stood before his representative, the governor, Pontius Pilate. Luke certainly has that scene in mind as he tells his tale, how the emperor in Rome decides to take, to take a census of his whole worldwide domain and how this census brings Jesus to be born in the town which was linked to King David himself. I like Kenneth Bailey's comments, a scholar who's lived in the Middle East for over 50 years. Uh, he has a, has a lot of knowledge about the culture in the background and how Arabic um, peoples even read the scripture and how they can understand things that will just escape our notice altogether. In one of his commentaries, he writes, The traditional events of the Christmas story are well known to all Christians. The birth of Jesus includes three wise men bearing gifts, shepherds in the fields in midwinter, a baby born in a stable, and no room in the inn. These aspects of the account are firmly fixed in the popular mind. The question becomes, is there a critical distinction to be made between the text and the traditional understanding of it? Have the centuries added meanings to our understanding of the text that are just not there? Well, that's, that's an that's a ominous question itself for our culture because we have this idea of what all the nativity scenes in our front yards and in our Christmas cards and even in our carols that we sing, we have this understanding of what they mean and sometimes we don't think beyond that. So what Bailey does is he goes into dissecting these traditions that we have and not to be critical, but to pull out the greater idea of what the story of Jesus' birth is really all about. And it's really all about, again, a king. Uh, it's about the confrontation of kingdoms uh, 
uh, the kingdom of this world versus Jesus' kingdom, which would have been depicted by the Roman kingdom versus the kingdom that Jesus was launching into the world, invading the world with. And even today, we don't often think of two different kingdoms. We think of maybe nations that are represented in the world politically, but we don't think of how Jesus' kingdom invades this world or is supposed to invade this world. And our story gets lost. The church's story gets lost in the midst of tradition. The church's story gets lost uh, in the Christmas story, overwhelms it. And so we at times need to take a step back and look and see uh, what those traditional understandings are. Bailey says, The traditional understanding of the account in Luke 2, 1 through 18 contains a number of critical flaws. Now he says the tradition contains the flaws, not Luke 2, 1 through 18. And he says those uh, include, number one, Joseph was returning to the village of his origin. In the Middle East, historical memories are long. And the extended family, with its connection to its village of origin, is important. In such a world, a man like Joseph could have appeared in Bethlehem and told people, I'm Joseph, son of Heli, son of Methot, the son of Levi, and most homes in town would be open to him. Number two, Joseph was a royal. That is, he was from the family of King David. The family of David was so famous in Bethlehem that local folk apparently called the town the city of David. The official name of the village was Bethlehem. Everyone knew that the Hebrew scriptures referred to Jerusalem as the city of David. Yet locally, many apparently called Bethlehem the city of David. Being that of a famous family, Joseph would have been welcome anywhere in town. Number three, in every culture, a woman about to give birth is given special attention. Simple rural communities in the world over always assist one of their own women in childbirth regardless of the circumstances. Are we to imagine that Bethlehem was an exception? Was there no sense of honor in Bethlehem? Surely the community would have sensed its responsibility to help Joseph find adequate shelter for Mary and provide the care she needed. To turn away a descendant of David in the city of David would be an unspeakable shame on the entire village. Number four, Mary had relatives in a nearby village. A few months prior to the birth of Jesus, Mary had visited her cousin Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea and was welcomed by her. Bethlehem was located in the center of Judea. By the time, therefore, that Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, they were but a short distance from the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. If Joseph had failed to find shelter in Bethlehem, he would have naturally turned to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But did he have time for those extra few miles? And number five, Joseph had time to make adequate, adequate arrangements. 
Luke chapter 2 verse 4 says that Joseph and Mary went up from Galilee to Judea. And verse 6 states, while they were there, the days, plural, were accomplished that she should be delivered. Uh, or that she should be, yeah, that she should be delivered. And the average Christian thinks that Jesus was born the same night the Holy Family arrived. Hence, Joseph's haste and willingness to accept any shelter, even that, even the shelter of a stable. Uh, traditional Christmas pageants reinforce the idea year after year. So we have Bailey's comments, five of them here, about those ideas that are commonly found in our culture and distort the real picture of the birth story of Jesus. So we need to continue to further examine maybe a few of those in this episode, and then we'll get on into, uh, again, the point of why we're discussing these, and that is that this is a king that we're talking about, a royal story being brought to light by Luke. And we're going to learn that Jesus' kingdom is in opposition to the Roman kingdom, which ruled the entire world. A humble kingdom versus a very powerful kingdom of the world. It's kind of like a David versus Goliath story. Um, someone very small versus someone very big, and yet the underdog is the one who wins. The manger story that we have in our front yards, on our Christmas cards, in our hymns and in our carols is a precious one for a reason. It's included in the Gospel of Luke, and it has a human touch to it because God works through humans. He worked through Jesus. But there's so much tradition that surrounds this that sometimes the story, the real story, is lost, and the meaning of that story is lost because of the tradition that we surround ourselves with. The manger is a main focus in Luke chapter 2, because it points directly to who the shepherds are to find. They're to find a king, a savior, and their Lord, a son of God, or the son of God, rather. And they're going to understand that this is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to rule the entire world. Not just them, but the entire world, including the Romans. The question is for us, do we understand the story to mean that for us? Do we understand that Jesus is our Messiah, that he is our King, that he's our Lord, that he is the Son of God for our world, and that he is ruling? And do we surround that sometimes with so much tradition that we forget the real meaning of the manger? Well, one more comment from Kenneth Bailey for this episode, and we'll approach this in continuing episodes, but here Kenneth Bailey says that we've been paying attention to this other story that was invented after the, the original Christian understanding of Jesus' birth story. 
And he says the source of this misinterpretation stems from approximately 200 years after Jesus' birth when an anonymous Christian wrote and expanded uh, the account of Jesus' birth that survived and is still called the Proto-Evangelium of James. And he says James had nothing to do with it. And he says the author wasn't even Jewish and didn't understand Palestinian geography or even Jewish tradition. And he says in that period, many people wrote books claiming famous people as authors. So he would have said something probably about James and people took to it and it, it stuck and did it ever because it's still in our minds and that's something we want, I want to get into later because we're going to be talking about that manger scene and answer maybe some of those questions about whether Jesus was actually born in a manger, uh, if it was in a cave, if it was in a barn, or if it was in someplace else uh, that uh, would have been very normal. And so with our uh, upcoming episodes, we're going to approach that, uh, but again, what does the manger point to? It points to hope, and it points to the fact that Jesus is going to make this world right. Uh, he is making it right uh, through us as much as possible, those who believe in him, those of us who have put our faith in him. He is making the world right through his followers, that was the intention of invading this world with his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And that's what the manger points to. But our understanding of it is so clouded. And so here in the Lighthouse podcast, we're going to revisit that story and try to gain a better understanding. So for now, have a great afternoon, have a great evening, or a great morning, and we'll see you again soon on the Lighthouse Podcast. My name is Ty Nickel.